Our reading this evening's from 1 Peter, chapter 1. This can be found on page 1217 in the Church Bibles. Page 1217, 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's select exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoiled or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are fulfilled an expressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Steve, thank you so much for reading those first 12 verses from uh, 1 Peter. Uh, my name is David Doherty. I'm like Daniel, I'm a member of the staff team here at Bishop Hannington, and um, we're going to be starting this Sunday evening a series of sermons on 1 Peter. So, because, you know, we need God's help to understand every part of God's word, uh, let's ask him to guide our thoughts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, written by the Apostle Peter, uh, written to a group of Christians. Yes, they lived at a different time and at a different place, but we're facing very similar issues to the ones that many of us face too. Heavenly Father, thank you for it. And Heavenly Father, help us to understand it this evening. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you always feel comfortable being a Christian? Now, of course, the truth is that just about everyone from time to time doesn't feel entirely comfortable with life, do they? You know, there are times when all of us feel out of place, when we feel out of the right words, when we feel out of our comfort zone. And for some people, it's not an occasional temporary thing. There are some people who find themselves in the wrong job. They can't get out of it. Life's uncomfortable. 
Some people find that they're living next to the wrong neighbours and they can't move and it's uncomfortable. I mean, all of us feel uncomfortable at one time or another. It goes with life. It can happen to anybody. But I'm not talking about that. Tell me, do yourself sometimes find yourself feeling uncomfortable because you're a Christian? Do you sometimes feel that there's a tension between what you believe and what you do because of your Christian commitment and what those around you believe or do? What those around you expect you to believe and to do? Or perhaps because of your Christian commitment, they treat you badly because you don't share their worldview, you don't share their attitudes, their beliefs or lack of beliefs, or, or, or behave in the same way as they do. Now, you know, if you feel like that, it's going to work out differently depending on your situation in life. It's going to be very different from someone in year three uh, from somebody teaching year three. It's going to be very different for a senior citizen who's the member of a bowls club from, say, a, a person who is doing A-levels or perhaps somebody who's doing the school run. It's going to be different from somebody in the second year at university to somebody working for Southern Railway. It's going to be different depending on what your situation is, but inevitably there are going to be times and situations when being a Christian makes you feel uncomfortable. And if you recognize this description, then the book of 1 Peter may just be right for you. Unlike some of the letters in the New Testament, um, the book of 1 Peter wasn't written to a particular church. It wasn't like Paul's letter to Corinth, for instance, where it was written to a particular church in a particular situation facing a particular set of, of problems. All we know about the readers of 1 Peter is that they lived in quite a large geographical area. Right at the beginning, we're told that they were people who lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, this was an enormous area which makes up a lot of what's now northern and western Turkey. What seems to have happened is that somebody would have taken Peter's letter from church to church throughout this area. They would have read it. They'd probably have made a copy of it. And then Peter's messenger, whoever he was, would have headed off to the next church and the next church would have the opportunity to read the letter uh, and to take a copy of it. We know roughly where these people lived, but beyond that, we don't really know all that much about them. Except for one thing. They were finding it uncomfortable to be a Christian. And you may have picked that up from our reading, where in verse 5, Peter talks about the people he was writing to as having had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There are references to all the kind of thing that the people were facing throughout the letter. What was going on? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 12, there's a reference to a fiery ordeal right towards the end of the book. And some people have picked up on that phrase, fiery ordeal, and concluded that it was a reference to the outbreak of persecution against Christians that took place around the time that this letter was written, probably, and around the time the Emperor Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, I don't know how much you know about Nero, but most people agree that Nero was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He was unstable, and he was responsible for the first real example of state-sponsored 
persecution of Christians. And for some people, yes, it did result in them facing a literal fiery ordeal. But nevertheless, that's probably not what Peter was writing to these Christians about. The truth is that Nero's persecution of Christians in the area of Rome, nasty though it was, was opportunistic and quite localised. And the people that Peter was writing to, well, they lived a long way away from Rome. State-sponsored persecution of Christians did come, but it happened at much later than this. As you read through this letter, what seems a more likely explanation is that Peter's readers were suffering, yes, they were suffering persecution and difficulty, but it was basically around the areas of prejudice and discrimination because of their Christian faith. In chapter 2, for instance, there's a reference to being accused of doing wrong and having to cope with ignorant talk. Chapter 3 speaks of suffering for what is right and of people who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ. Or in chapter 4, there's a reference to insults and to suffering and to people who heap abuse on you. Let's just take a moment to think about that last reference in a little bit more detail. It's chapter 4 of chapter 4, where Peter says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. You have the picture of a community where people are engaging in in behaviour. The previous verse spells it out. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry that Christians just don't want to have have anything to do with. They don't want to be associated with it. They want to stand back for it and turn their back on it completely. And what they're faced with from the community amongst which they live are two things. First of all, they're faced with utter bemusement. The community just cannot understand why the Christians won't join in. Everybody else is doing it. Why do you Christians not want to join in what everybody else is doing? On one hand, utter abusement. On the other hand, ridicule and abuse. The the non-Christians don't simply shrug their shoulders and move on. No, they... They they mock the Christians and they ridicule them and make them feel small and ridiculous because they don't want to be associated with the behaviour of the majority community. Do you recognise this? You know, in my in a previous job, I I worked with a Christian organisation, and uh, they decided it would be good to pack me off on a management course. And well, who knows? Maybe they were right. Uh, and I find myself on this three-day management course in London. Um, most of the people there were people from in- industry. Uh, and during the course of the three days, we all had to say, you know, two minutes about what our organizations did. Now, my organization was FIBA Radio, a Christian mission agency. And I did two minutes uh, explaining what FIBA was about. The only comment I got at the end of this was, you're mad. It hurt. It was frankly difficult to say anything sensible in response to it. I was sitting on the train going from Aldrington back to East Worthing. Um, met three Albion supporters who Albion had won that day uh, and they were in quite a good mood. We got talking and they asked me what I did. I told them I worked for a church. I had ten minutes of ridicule. 
uh, with them talking about me and talking about churches. It happens, doesn't it? Do you recognize it? Do you enjoy it? Do you feel comfortable? In the playground, they say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we all know this isn't true. You only need to think of the concern there is about online abuse and listen to some of the things its victims share to know how hurtful and damaging words can be. In the 21st century, British Christians probably don't suffer persecution in the accepted sense of the word. Indeed, on a worldwide scale, while Christians in some parts of the world are going through incredibly difficult experiences, many are not. But prejudice, discrimination, ridicule, marginalization are widespread and arguably growing issues for Christians today. I came across this quotation a while ago. Now, I fear it was written by an academic because he obviously reckons that a long word is far better than a short one. But nevertheless, it sums things up very helpfully, I think. He wrote this. Suffering is no less real just because it doesn't lead to death. Since scorn and contempt are slow-working acids that, that corrode individual and communal identity, social alienation should not be viewed as a trivial form of suffering. Persecution may bring death, but the martyr has the advantage of dying with meaning. In other words, martyrs can end up famous. Who knows, you might even have a church named after you. Those who are simply worn down by it all, they die in obscurity. Slow-working acids that hurt, damage, mark people for life. Slow-working acids that corrode our confidence, our strength, our sense of purpose and hope. And this letter explores how Christians can react to and cope with that kind of pressure. But Peter doesn't start with advice. He starts with reminders, two important reminders. And the first reminder is this. Remember, remember who you are. Right at the start in verse 1, Peter uses two words to describe who Christians are. This letter isn't sent to a bunch of people who happen to live in what's now modern-day Turkey, but to a people who are God's elect and who are also exiles. Let's look at that second idea first. That of being exiles. If you look down the page to verse 17, you'll see that Peter also describes Christians as foreigners. While in the next chapter, verse 11, he again uses the terms foreigners and exiles to describe Christians. This summer, Ruth and I spent a week in North Wales. That's halfway up Snowdon. I took the picture. It's evidence that at least I got halfway up Snowdon. Um, (laughs) We had a great time. And everyone we met was really nice to us. But one of the things that I was very conscious of, it's a while since I've actually spent a lot of time in North Wales. And one of the things that I was conscious of was that I was hearing far more Welsh spoken around me than I could remember the last time I was there. It was in the shops, it was in the streets, it was in the cafes. It was even in the church that we went to. And I was aware of just how much I was missing of what was going on around me. It, it was a strange experience but I was only there for a week. But without a reasonable knowledge of Welsh, living there all the time would have been a very, a very strange and difficult experience. 
it would have been really difficult to feel completely comfortable there. If you find this world uncomfortable as a Christian, difficult to live in as a follower of Jesus, Peter is saying, don't be surprised. It's going to be difficult to feel completely at home in this world because we're no longer a member of the kingdom of this world. We're now a member of God's kingdom. Our stay in this world is temporary. Our real home is with God. Now, this doesn't mean that we despise or ignore our current residence here on earth. While Ruth and I went to church in North Wales, somebody tried to recruit us. They actually said, you know, have you ever thought about retiring to North Wales and getting involved in ministry here? Now, I have to say, we haven't thought about it. But, you know, I am thinking about it now. Don't know if it will happen. But, you know, don't ask, don't get, I guess. But one of the things they told us, that anyone, whether to get involved in church ministry for any other reason, if you settle in North Wales, one of the things that makes a tremendous difference is making an effort to learn Welsh. It's not about actually doing it well, it's actually about making the effort. People notice it and people appreciate it. And as we go through this letter, you'll see that Peter encourages his readers to make the effort too. Uh, Verse 12, verse 12 of chapter 2 puts it this way. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Even though we are, in a sense, foreigners, we work for the good of society and those around us. We look to make a positive contribution. We aim to be good citizens, but we don't fall into the trap of thinking that that's all that it's about. It's not. We are temporary residents. Our hope is in God's kingdom. Our future is in God's kingdom. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. For here we do not have an enduring city. We are looking for the city that is to come. Or as somebody else put it, the world is a bridge. The wise person will pass over it, but not make their home on it. Do you know why? Because bridges don't last. And this is one of the things that puts all those trials into a perspective. Our place on earth is temporary, and that means that the difficulties that go with living on earth are also temporary too. We're exiles. But you'll remember that Peter also described those Christians as not just exiles, but also as God's elect. Maybe people around you don't like you very much because you're a Christian. Maybe they don't seem to appreciate you. Maybe they don't treat you terribly well. But you know something? God likes you. God's chosen you. Yes, there are times when things are not going well. Sometimes those things are our fault. Poor decisions that we've made. But not always. Those Christians in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, in Bithynia might have preferred to have been somewhere else, but God wanted them there. He had chosen them to be there. In the words of chapter 2 and verse 9, to be a chosen people declaring the praises of him who called them into darkness, out of darkness into his wonderful light. Maybe you don't like where you work. 
Maybe you don't like the attitudes, the casual squaring, the shortcuts that people take. Maybe it's difficult to be a Christian at school or at college or at university. Maybe it's tough being next to an unpleasant neighbour. But maybe God has chosen to put you there for a reason. And it's not just this sense of having been chosen by God to be his witness in a particular place. It's more than that. It's also the idea that God has chosen you to be a member of his kingdom in the first place. God has chosen you not because he needed more people in Hove, but because he set his love on you. You will see that verse 2 expands on this and tells us just, just how thorough and complete God's involvement in this calling is. Christians have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Christians are Christians. The church is the church because God's planned it. It's not an accident. It's not the result of human idealism or planning. It's the result of God's foreknowledge and plan. It's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit who who enables us to realize that we're sinners who leads us to seek forgiveness at the cross of Christ and strengthens us to live for him as Christians. And it's bound up with the death of Jesus and his call to follow him. Back at the start, we said that all we really knew about the letter's first readers was where they lived. And they were finding it uncomfortable to be a Christian. But actually, we've learned more about them already, haven't we? And about Christians everywhere. We are God's elect, chosen by him. And we're alien and fo- aliens and foreigners. We are crossing the bridge. We haven't reached our final destination. And if this world seems an uncomfortable place, don't be surprised. Don't be worried. Remember who you are, but not just remember who you are. Remember also what you have. God's elect, exiles, heading over the bridge we call life. But more than that, we possess something very special. Described in verse 3 as a living hope. Why a living hope? Perhaps because it's all based around life, about new life for us and the resurrection of Jesus coming back to life. Peter tells us four exciting things about this living hope that we have as Christians. And the first thing that he tells us about this living hope is that it is certain, absolutely certain. Just think about what Peter says in verses 4 and 5. Because of this living hope, we have an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is something that you look forward to, isn't it? Maybe you know that somebody has remembered you in their will. You don't have it now, but you're looking forward to receiving it some point in the future. And the inheritance that we have through this living hope is something that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, you can't guarantee that in, this, in today's world, can you? Maybe you are expecting inheritance. Perhaps an elderly relative has remembered you in their will. Can you be absolutely certain it's going to come through? No, you can't. Maybe your relative's fortune is in stocks and shares. Well, as we know, the value of stocks and shares can go up, but they can also go down. I had shares in Bradford and Bingley. They're worthless. 
So my son is not going to benefit from, from them at all. Maybe, maybe your relative's wealth is in a valuable painting. Well, it can be exposed to too much sunlight and fade. You can actually find when you take it to the auction house that it's not a turner after all. You know, you can't be sure about an inheritance if it's a valuable painting. Or maybe it's cash. Well, cash seems fairly sure, doesn't it? But maybe it's going to be spent with the care costs of your elderly relative before they pass away. You can't be certain about a human inheritance, but you can be certain about this one. It's not at risk from misfortune. It's absolutely certain. And, in fact, our hope is not subject to any of the risks that things in this world face. See, it's not being kept in a safety deposit box in Hatton Garden. Our hope is not anchored in this life at all. It's being kept for us in heaven, completely insulated from anything and everything that this world could throw at it. Our hope is not at risk from anything that can happen in this world. It's certain. And it's protected. Not by a security firm or by an army. It's protected by God's power. And, And notice that phrase, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God is going to keep on protecting a Christian's living hope for as long as it's needed. Until the end of time, our hope is not even at risk from time. It's absolutely certain. But as well as being certain, our living hope is also real. Verses 6 and 7 speak about the trials that Peter's readers, readers were facing. It recognizes that they're a source of grief and sadness and not something to be welcomed for their own sake. Not something to go out and deliberately look for. Uh, Nor is he saying that we should necessarily rejoice in the fact that we are suffering. Peter's reference to rejoicing looks back to what's gone on before. We rejoice because of the living hope we have. And that living hope is so good, so powerful, that we can still rejoice even though we're going through difficult times and facing trials. But there is, despite this, something positive that we can say about the trials that we're facing. They help show us, and perhaps others, that our faith in Jesus is real. And because of that, our hope is real too. Verse 7 tells us that these trials, and I guess uh, the, one, the way in which we respond to them, demonstrate the reality of our faith and hope, its genuineness. And that this will be confirmed when Jesus returns and bring praise and glory and honor to him. The trials test the reality of our living hope. And when you think about it, you only test things that you think might be genuine. I mean, if I was to offer you an £18 note, you probably wouldn't take it to the bank to get it checked out, would you? Well, I hope you wouldn't anyway. But if I offered you a £20 note, you might say to yourself, well, David comes from Scotland. And Scotland's, people from Scotland aren't famous for giving out £20 notes. So I wonder if it's real. 
And you might just be tempted, I'm sure no more than tempted, to take it off the bank to find out if it's the real thing. You only test things that you think are real. And the testing that Christians experience, well, it only tests things that that are real, don't they? This living hope, this living hope is real. It's certain, it's real, and it's joyful. We've already seen from verse 6 that the living hope is a cause for rejoicing, and verses 8 and 9, well, they expand on it. Of course, for us, as well as for Peter's readers, there is a difference. Unlike Peter, we have never physically seen Jesus. I believe I'm married. I was there at the time. I love Ruth. I see her frequently, and I'm reminded all the time of the reasons why I wanted to marry her in the the first place, and the reason why I continue to love her. But obviously, that's different from the relationship we have with Jesus, because You know, we don't have that physical view of Jesus. And yet Peter says, nevertheless, um, you know, this living hope gives us reason for great joy. Even though we haven't physically seen Jesus, nevertheless, we're filled with great joy. Why? Because we're experiencing and knowing the salvation of our souls. Now, perhaps you don't always feel like that maybe not all the time. Uh, Perhaps we have become weighed down by our troubles, lost sight of this living hope. Maybe we've grown over-familiar with the good news. Maybe we've forgotten how mind-boggling it is, the story of God working throughout history uh, to have a chosen people for all eternity. Perhaps we've become too attached to this world, the bridge we're crossing. Maybe we are not as attentive as we should be thinking back to verse 2 of the sanctifying work of the Spirit or of being obedient to Christ and forgetting that the world is not going to last and the living hope promises us the salvation of our souls. But if we do remember that this world isn't going to last and if we do remember that the good news promises us the salvation of our souls, well, I can think of a a lot of things that are, give you much less cause for joy than that. Yes, this living hope, if we understand it, if we remember it, if we cling on to it, yes, that's a reason for great joy and great gladness, isn't it? Certain, real, joyful. But finally, it's greater. It's greater than anyone has ever imagined. Verses 10 and 12 if anything, sum up just how difficult it is for people to imagine uh, or, or understand just how amazing the good news of salvation through Jesus is. Peter speaks about the Old Testament prophets struggling to grasp the wonder of what God was planning. It wasn't for work of effort. Verse 10 tells us that they searched intently with the greatest care. They understood some of it, but they didn't understand it all. They were trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. And what's more, what they did understand wasn't the result of their cleverness. Verse 12 tells us that what they did know was revealed to them by God. 
Indeed, the final sentence of verse 12 tells us that not even heavenly beings, the angels got it. They could no more conceive of just how amazing this living hope was, uh, was going to be than the prophets. A living hope greater than anyone could imagine. And yet revealed to us by God and given to us by God. In John 16, Jesus is recorded as saying, in this world you will have trouble. Peter was there when Jesus said those words. And Peter underlines those words. Yes, in this world you will have trouble. It's guaranteed. Sorry about that. But Jesus went on to say this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Peter would underline that statement too. As followers of Jesus, we will face trials of various kinds. But let's remember who we are. Maybe exiles, maybe feeling a bit uncomfortable, but nevertheless people who've been chosen by God. And let's remember what we have. We have a living hope because of what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of his son. Those early Christians might well have been despised by society, but in God's eyes, their position was high and elevated. Public opinion might have regarded them as a recently formed cult of doubtful origin, but in reality, they were part of a work of God that had reached its culmination in the ministry of Jesus that but had been building up over centuries. How do you think 21st century society views the church? Our experience will, experiences will vary. But in God's eyes, as a follower of Jesus, your position is also a high and exalted one. Whatever your situation, however things are going for you, however good, bad or indifferent, whatever the attitude of people to the fact that you follow Jesus, whether it's indifference, bewilderment, misunderstanding, hostility or aggression, focus on the long-term picture. Because of the resurrection, you've been born into a living hope You have an inheritance that is real and certain. We're all crossing a bridge called life. It's no one's final destination. So remember who you are. Remember what you have. And don't make your home on the bridge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Peter tells us about wonderful things that we have. He tells us about who we are, chosen by God. He tells us about the living hope. He tells us that it's certain, that it's real, that it's a reason to be joyful, that it's greater than anyone could imagine. And thank you, Lord, that it's ours. Heavenly Father, help us to cross the bridge well, Help us not to make our home on the bridge. Help us to look forward to the home that we have in heaven. And help us to cope with the trials with your grace. Amen.